Our second reading is from Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Thank you very much, Edward, for reading that to us. Um, I propose to focus mainly on verses 1 to 3 of that second reading from Genesis chapter 12, but it's good to have uh, the rest read. Let's pray and ask for God's help in uh, looking into those verses a little more. We thank you for the gift of your word, Heavenly Father. We pray that as we turn to it now. Graciously, we would not just have words on the page before us, but we'd be aware of you speaking to our hearts. And we pray you would quicken faith in us, that we wouldn't waver through unbelief, but would be strengthened and give glory to you, that you are able to fulfill all that you've promised. But please spur us on, whatever our current situation We pray it for the honor and glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, you will have gathered that today is Advent Sunday uh, from everything in the service uh, thus far. I suppose it means that the unofficial build-up to Christmas is over and we can uh, get cracking on the the real build-up. American Thanksgiving on Thursday, Black Friday, that's the sort of business world, sort of uh, hoping that uh, it'll inject a bit of life into the economy. But Advent Sunday really is the official start of the build-up to Christmas. Often in the Christian calendar, that involves in lectionary terms, in terms of what the, uh, the, the church is encouraged to look at in its services, um, looking at Old Testament roots to the Christian hope, the Christian message. And that's what we've set ourselves to do this year. Uh, Our series is called A Cast of Characters. Looking at a cast of characters from the Old Testament 
to point the way to the coming of God's great rescuer, King Jesus. I wonder, I set a challenge in the first service to uh, see if they could do this and come up with uh, five characters. That's what we've done in our series to sum up and explain the Old Testament. If you just had to limit it to five, who would you choose in that situation? You're only allowed five, I ought to say. So it gets easier if you're sort of allowed 15. There are all sorts of people that could make their way in, but that clarifies it. We had Adam last week, the founding father of the human race, uh, made in the image of God to know God and to make him known, uh, to image him, to creation. So if you are a created human being, then he is in your family photo album, of course. And I guess, therefore, that means every one of us here is a descendant just by virtue of our creation, male and female, in the image of God. So I don't think anybody can dispute Adam has a right to be in our top five. Next in line, and you already know what's coming from the service so far, Father Abraham. And he's the character I want us to consider today with the help of that passage, which has been called the seedbed of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Actually, the, uh, the text I want to choose is a refrain that I've come back to um, again and again. Uh, it's from a question that God poses to Abraham in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 18. The question is this, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I think that's fitting after where we left things last week with Adam. Uh, humanly speaking, with the image of God degraded and decayed... We're left asking a question, can it really be possible that God's good plans for humanity can be achieved? I remember once discussing with somebody uh, who told me that they had a a sort of filing tray in their office, which had lots of good things in it, noble aspirations, excellent plans for their firm, but there were things that weren't being done or even attempted. And that filing tray had a two-word title, the too hard tray. Um, in other words, lots of great ideas, but at the moment we can't just realize them. It's too difficult, too hard. Well, maybe God's good plans, we're tempted to say when you get to Genesis chapter 3, are in the same category, too hard. There was, we saw last week, if you were here, a pattern established then. The man and the woman in the Garden of Eden relating in a beautiful way, openly, with God, their maker. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Wonderful. Um, Adam, he might well be in that picture a global, universal, human progenitor. But what when humanity disobeys God and that pattern gets unraveled? Um, The point, if we had time to go through the whole of Genesis 1 to 11, rather than just uh, reprise 1 to 3, is that the the pattern does get unraveled. Globally speaking, the whole human race is, uh, humanly speaking, doomed. There's a Gary Larson cartoon that makes that same point. It pictures two goldfish in a bowl. They're talking about a third goldfish. I guess he made it, says one fish to the other. It's been more than a week since he went over the wall. Only we can see the third fish hasn't made it. It's lying dead 
and decomposed on the floor. The proper environment for a goldfish is in the bowl. Once it steps out of that bowl of water, death is bound to follow. And human beings as created beings can only function within the limits of their creatureliness, obeying their creator. When we let for freedom in Genesis chapter 3, the result was disaster. So the pattern unravels in Genesis 4 to 11 before we get to Abraham. And the full results of that act of disobedience Well, it's pretty depressing reading. Chapter 4, the first murder as Cain kills Abel. That is death, I suppose you could say, by unnatural causes. In Genesis chapter 5, we encounter death by natural causes. It's that genealogy with the refrain that comes again and again. It would never have happened, that refrain, if Adam hadn't sinned. Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Enosh, 905. Kenan. 912, these great figures, and he died, and he died, and he died. Almost like a a funereal drumbeat, or that muffled tenor bell that we had sounding slowly on Remembrance Day last week. By Genesis 6, the inner decay of sin is universal and complete. You get really strong language used there. Every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. I guess that means not that man is in every respect as completely evil as it's possible to be all the time, but that there's no part of anyone's lives where sin hasn't spoiled and distorted us. It's like ink working through a jug of water so that it's colored the whole lot. Our entire life has been spoiled and infected by our rebellion against God. That leads in Genesis 6 to the flood, which is a a cataclysmic judgment. And even though it's something of a new start after the flood, it's obvious as you read the account there, it's plainly easier to wash the earth clean of the human race, you could say, than to wash sin from the hearts of the survivors and their children there. And you'll know that if you're familiar with Noah's later years. So, you get a picture of a a global, universal problem. And then Genesis 11, just before our second reading, there's that story of the Tower of Babel, which in one sense replicates that sin of Genesis chapter 3, only this time it's socially and collectively. Before, with Adam and Eve, it was personal pride, rivaling God. Genesis 11, it's collective pride. A whole host of people, they all gather together to take on heaven and in judgment, God scatters them across the world and introduces the language barrier. Now I've heard it said that the scattering of God at Babel is actually presented as a kindness on God's part. The new element of um, international tension which follows from it caused by the language barrier and that geographical spread of humanity, that was God's plan to stop mankind clubbing together, as they had at Babel in another episode of global sin. That's actually pretty thought-provoking, if you think about it. Um, We so often moan, don't we, about the struggles countries have getting on and the difficulties the UN have uh, to succeed in their labours. But I wonder if you can actually believe that the international tensions of our world are 
actually better than us all coming together to reconstruct our own atheistic Eden, independently from God, and then being flattened by judgment as a result. Is that a question and a thoughtful avenue to pursue in your uh, rumination on that? There is a mercy in the judgment at Babel. I suppose that's only more, little more than a, a crumb of comfort. But you get the point, don't you? By this point, the situation for humanity is not good, is it? They're no longer God's people. They're not in God's place. They're separated um, from each other by geography and language. They're not living under his blessing or rule. The pattern that we talked about has been unraveled. Can it ever be restored? Or is that in God's too hard tray? Well, God in the life of Abraham puts the question back to us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I'd be amazed if that question, that kind of question or concern hadn't occurred to people in recent times. Life seems very hard at the moment. But Abraham invites us to rephrase that question with God in the focus. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So lots of things are in the too hard tray Maybe for us, we're faced with a health service under pressure, emotional fallout from years of isolation, academic burdens on everyone in education, economic constraints are going to be with us for years, or more likely with our children and grandchildren. Or you could add um, announcements about church life. We've heard the figures about our costs. Do we even dare hope we can have a curate, a youth worker, and a building that will be functional and nice? It looks on all sorts of different vantage points as if human endeavor is going to be stretched to breaking points. Well, recast the question with God in the picture. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, those concerns I've mentioned, I I don't want to minimize them, but the Bible actually comes back to us and says the issue of human sin is harder and more intractable than all the other issues that we think make our lives hard. And we mustn't lose sight of that. You could eliminate all the difficulties of the last few years. COVID, Ukraine, climate change, depressed markets, depressed teenagers, whatever it might be. We are still left, even if you got rid of all those symptomatic problems, we're still left with the biggest problem. Our rebellion against God and our alienation from him. But is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, I mentioned this question is asked in connection with the life of Abraham. It's there in chapter 18. And his life is the divine answer to that question. And it all happens because of the promises we see in Genesis chapter 12. I'll reread those three verses because there it becomes clear that God's purposes and God's kingdom are not forgotten. Genesis means beginning. So you see, last week we had one beginning, the start of the world, Adam. Now we see a new beginning, moving from the large scale of creation in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 to the tiny scale of just one person, one man. The kingdom's blessings are promised to and through one person, this man called Abraham and his descendants. Let me read verses 1 to 3 again. The Lord had said to Abraham, 
Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And you get the uh, walkabout tour in the second bit of the reading we had, verses 4 to, uh, is it verse 9, verse 8. Go to the land I'll show you, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You should be able to spot, again in those verses, the elements of the kingdom pattern. God's people in God's place under his rule. From this one man, Abraham, God's people will come, a great nation, verse 2. As numerous, we learn later, as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. They'll be given a place, a land is promised to Abraham, the land of Canaan, and they'll be under God's blessing and rule, so that God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And God's blessing is such that all nations are going to benefit Yes, it's very small, the beginning, of course, that's true. One old man and his wife, well beyond childbearing age. But is anything too hard for the Lord? No, Isaac is born to them. And when that awful test faces Abraham, Isaac's got to be sacrificed. You were thinking, how will the promises be kept then? Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. If he had to, he could, reasoned Abraham, raise the dead. So whatever the setbacks, and they're going to be multiplied in the history of Israel, the end game for God is the same. We scratch our heads, what, through Israel? Surely not, they're so compromised. How could God's purposes rest on them? Well, again, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, he promised not just a national people, the Jewish race, but an international, interracial people through the seed of Abraham the descendant with a capital D, Jesus Christ. So Abraham, or Abraham, the father of many nations, tells us we cannot truly grasp the Old Testament unless we grasp God's global ambition. I don't know what you feel about um, the World Cup as it's happening at the moment. I love the fact that it's a real sort of melting pot event. Events like the World Cup um, uh, bring all the nations together in some sort of global fest for that period. But impressive though it is, it is only a fortnight for every four years or so, isn't it? It's not very often, and there are lots of people here probably, I hasten to add, who are eager for it to be over quickly. Um, God is committed to doing something much more effective and eternal uh, a number of us are involved in midweek groups in the church life. And as it happens, on Thursdays, there's a group in the mornings that has been following a different timetable and the midweek evening groups that uh, lots of people are involved in. We've got actually pretty much at the same point in John's Gospel in both those things by different routes. And we've had a lovely moment recently where some Greeks in Jerusalem have the courage to ask. We want to see Jesus, they say. Passover time, they're there. And they ask that question. And Jesus comments that that request, coming 
at that time is a mega moment in the purposes of God. Now is the Son of Man glorified, he says. He'll be lifted up in a couple of days for all the world to see, including Greeks, which is another way of saying non-Jews or Gentiles in Bible language. When Jesus is lifted up, exactly what would happen physically when his cross was raised from the ground, when he dies so that our sin can be paid for and forgiven, then... Anyone, anywhere can come to God on that basis. And that's what he promised in John chapter 12. I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. All peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. All because the curse which we deserve falls on that one seed of Abraham, Jesus, so that he can bless us because the curse has been undone. See what's happening from this point on in the Bible? God is undoing the scattering of Babel and gathering people instead around Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham. Now, I want to invite us as a church to remember that as we gather in the season of Advent. What is going on as we come together? Well, gathering is God's agenda for the world at the moment. That's where our services on a Sunday fit in. It's where any other Christian meeting that happens that you could care to mention. I was thinking about schools where a Christian union, it costs an absolute fortune in one sense for a teenager to attend a Christian union meeting. But God's committed to gathering. The church home group on a midweek night after somebody's got back late from work and they don't really want to go out again, thank you very much. Well, God is committed to gathering. And it's not just a human gathering that's happening on a Sunday or in our smaller groups. God is wanting to use them to gather his people together as his work. And we need to watch out for anything that undermines that gathering agenda of God's. I've got a a beef on, this is really me washing my own dirty laundry in public at this point. I'm slightly wary of of mentioning it. I find it very easy to resort to an email rather than meeting up with people. And I always am puzzled by how unproductive that is. Emails cannot smile. And they can't listen well. Even if I put emojis, somebody was telling me the other day, that's a... That that doesn't work. Often, meeting is better than messages, if I can put it like that. It's the work of the devil to divide and conquer. And he'd love to separate us from other Christians somehow. Well, we mustn't give him an inch. God is wanting to gather us around Jesus Christ. And these promises say he will do it. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. They are great promises from a great God. Um, We had the privilege of being part of a a confirmation service at Ely Cathedral yesterday evening, and it was lovely to hear the candidates making those great promises about their commitment to God. But one of the most lovely encouragements Sheila got uh, in the run-up to confirmation was a card from somebody who'd been following Christ for more than 70 years saying that they can remember making promises to God when they were 13. 
and maybe they hadn't always done brilliantly at keeping those promises. But they said, God is so much better at making promises and keeping them than I have been. And that's our confidence, isn't it? The fact that they're God's promises in Genesis chapter 12 is very significant in the sense that they are things that only God can do. It's his kingdom that is at issue, and he is committed to setting it up. So from Genesis chapter 12 onwards in the Bible, it's as if a rock has been thrown into a pool and the ripples are going to spread out till the entire world is affected, including little us in little Shelford. I've got two concluding comments for us as we think ahead to how these promises play out in God's plan. First, the promises tell us about God's purpose his purpose for us and for the human race. And that big picture of God's plan is absolutely vital for us. As I've said in our too hard trade, there are all sorts of things that make you think the world is in chaos at the moment. And they'll be different for each one of us. The children or grandchildren are going backwards at school. The finances are in free fall. Emotions out of control. Whatever it might be. But God has his purposes, and he will not be denied. I wonder if we can have that confidence and take that with us. Secondly, these verses tell us, not explicitly, but they tell us, don't they, about God's grace. Sometimes people think, oh, you read Genesis chapter 12, and there's all these different places mentioned that I can't make head or tail of, and I get a bit lost about it. It feels very remote to us, doesn't it? We feel like it's not our world. We aren't mentioned by name at all. But the fact that you and I aren't mentioned by name in Genesis 12 is a good thing because it reminds us that God set his plans in motion before we'd done anything, good or bad. They don't depend on us at all, but entirely on God's grace. So, in the events recorded here, it's true, we aren't mentioned by name. We weren't even a twinkle in our parents' eyes at that stage. But we were a twinkle in God's eyes, if I can put it like that. Somebody's once remarked that the work of creation is dealt with in just a couple of pages, right at the start of the Bible. But the work of redemption, that takes well over a thousand pages, and it spans the millennia. And God had you and me in mind all the while. So whatever happens to us, if we don't feel we matter to anyone, we matter to God. And I want to encourage us on the basis of Abraham, uh, don't doubt that, please, for a moment. We matter to God. Hang on to his purpose and hang on to his grace. Let's pray that he'd enable us to do so. And we pray that we'd walk in the steps of our father, Abraham, Heavenly Father, that we wouldn't waver through unbelief regarding your promise, but that we'd be strengthened in our faith and give glory to you, being fully persuaded that you have power to do what you've promised. And we pray, therefore, that you'd sustain us with your purposes, with your grace, 
to us and indeed to many others, those who as yet are far from you, we dare to think. Gracious God, please fulfill your purposes to the honor and glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray it for his name's sake. Amen.